This is the Westwards podcast, a fortnightly production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. Western Sydney is located on the traditional lands of the Darug, Gunungurra and Tharawal nations, and we acknowledge and offer our respects to all Indigenous people and to their Elders past, present and emerging. Opinions and views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the Westwards organisation. If you'd like to ask questions, offer feedback or simply learn more about what we do at Westwards, please visit westwards.com.au. All right, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Westwards podcast for today, the 5th of June 2021. My name is James Roy, I'm your host, I'm the producer at Westwards and I am here today to uh, bring you all the good stuff on our podcast. Now I've got a couple of interesting things to share with you today, not least of all a conversation about a much maligned music star, a superstar. Uh, and when I say his name, you're probably going to groan because that's what people do, tend to do when, when this musician is mentioned. But he's also incredibly successful. And we're going to have a bit of a chat about uh, how we as artists deal with watching other people being incredibly successful when perhaps we don't feel that uh, their talent is up to the job. Now, it sounds like a pretty dark thing to talk about, doesn't it, for, uh, for artists? But... I think if we're honest, we're going to realise that all of us at some point have looked at somebody and their work and gone, really, that that person is the person who's getting all the success? I don't know about you, I've certainly felt that way in the past, and it's not a nice feeling. Uh, it leaves you feeling a combination of being a little bit uh, bitter, and it makes you feel a little bit um, guilty, I suppose. So we're going to have a bit of a chat about that. Uh, we've also got a little bit of an excerpt from an upcoming MIDI masterclass where uh, our guest actually talks a little bit about the same subject and I've got some annou- uh, some announcements and some news for you at the end. So please stay with us on the Westwards podcast. So as you will probably know, one of the things we do on the Westwards podcast is we each uh, episode we have a quote of the day from somebody who was uh, usually someone who was born on this day occasionally we'll get somebody who who passed away on this day or some major event that occurred on this day but today it's a birthday one and i did warn you that you would groan when i said his name i am not legally allowed to play any of his music because we would have to pay royalties because he is enormously successful and yet he is much maligned and i am of course talking about kenny g so I've just given a bit of a pause there for you to groan because that's what people do. And why do they groan about Kenny G? I mean, look, he's 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 not hurting anyone. He seems like a really nice guy. Anyone who's ever met him seems to think he's a pretty nice guy. He's a pretty decent chap. He's got a pretty good sense of humour. He's also got quite a few records under his belt. Let's have a couple of numbers here. He has sold more than 75 million records. 75 million and uh, he tried to get into a jazz band when he was at school and he, he couldn't actually, uh, he, he struggled for a while and then he got in, he, he was playing his alto sax and he was playing soprano sax and, and, um, and took private lessons. But uh, then he, his, his career kind of took off when he was 17. He started playing professionally and he was playing in a, 
a funk band and then he in a jazz band and then he broke through with a band called the duo tones and off he went and then he was off to the races so he's worked with some pretty big uh, players over the years he played um he had a song called songbird that reached number four on the billboard top hot 100 and he he has had a whole string of number one or top 10 hits and he's played with some pretty big players george benson Patti labelle aretha franklin Dionne warwick um Andrea Bocelli, Aaron Neville, Tony Braxton, Natalie Cole, Stephen Miller, or Steve Miller, uh, Michael Bolton, well, Michael Bolton, Celine Dion. See, there's some of the people we've grown at again, but again, these are people who are pretty impressive uh, musicians or successful musicians in their own right. And then he came to the 90s and he came out with an album called Breathless, and Breathless was massive. It became the best-selling instrumental album ever, with over 15 million copies sold worldwide and 12 million copies sold in the United States alone. Now, this, this is a little bit of a different uh, way of looking at sales than they do now because, of course, records aren't sold as records anymore. They're sold as downloads. But back, this was back when people were actually going out and buying CDs. And he sold over 12 million in the United States alone. And on it went. He, 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 uh, his second holiday album called Faith, which is, I suppose, a Christmas album. Uh, it was the best-selling holiday album of 1999 in the US with 2 million units. Most musicians be happy to sell 2 million units in their entire career, but he sold one album, a holiday album of all things. So you'd be forgiven for thinking that uh, Kenny G was a bit of a... A monster in the music industry and of course he is if you look at his absolute at his total sales one of his biggest markets is in china apparently there's a song uh, called going home from the kenny g live album it's become a bit of an unconventional mega hit in china it's become something like the unofficial national closing song for businesses like shops and so forth and they play this song while they're closing up at night and it just many people don't know who wrote it or what the name of the song is but it just has become this kind of unofficial closing theme so here's a guy who has made a lot of money and sold a lot of records and should have garnered massive respect and in, in one sense he has garnered massive respect with his with his listeners with the people who buy his records and yet people still bag him out I'm going to read this paragraph, uh, or two paragraphs, from Kenny G's Wikipedia page because it puts it pretty nicely and sets up for what we're going to talk about. It says, Kenny G has attracted significant criticism from mainstream jazz musicians and enthusiasts. Pat Metheny stated he was a pop saxophonist, quote, but was not really an advanced player, even in that style, adding that he had major rhythmic problems and his harmonic and melodic vo vocabulary was extremely limited mostly to pentatonic-based and blues-lick-derived patterns. Matheny believes the main reason Kenny G has become unpopular is, quote, he sells an enormous amount of records while not being anywhere near a really great player in relation to the standards that have been set on his instrument over the past 60 or 70 years. Branford Masalis once stated in an interview with Jazz's magazine, when all these jazz guys get in a tizzy over Kenny G, they need to leave Kenny alone. He's not stealing jazz. The audience he has wouldn't be caught dead at a real jazz concert or a club. It's not like some guy says, you know, I used to listen to Miles, Coltrane and Ornette, and then I heard Kenny G and I never put on another Miles record. It's a completely different audience. 
Kenny G's 1999 single, What a Wonderful World, was criticised for its overdubbing of Louis Armstrong's recording. The primary criticism is that a recording by Armstrong, known especially for improvisation, should not be altered by a musician whose range and depth of understanding was already in question. Some columnists suggested Kenny G's recording exposed, some, uh, re exposed more fans to real jazz, but the response to his recording tended to be negative. So what does Kenny G have to say about this? He says, what is music anyway? It's a form of communication, and that's why I play the kind of music that I think, and I hope, can communicate with people. Well, his numbers would suggest that that's exactly what's happened. But this is the one I like best. Just because people play songs with great technique doesn't mean the records are better. Now, as a musician myself, I think that um, it uh, <laughs> oftentimes people with better technique do deserve the uh, greater accolades because uh, that's just the way it goes. But at the same time, let's think about it this way. He says, Maybe I'm a dreamer. But I think the ordinary guy has just as much right to say this is a good song as somebody who is in the music business. And you know what? He's probably got a point. In fact, I know he's got a point. So I'm going to share a little bit of my own story here because I have to say with uh, some embarrassment that this is something that I struggled with myself for a very long time. This kind of snobbery that people have about their writing or about their art and I think most of us like to think that we try to remain humble and, and modest and grounded and and open to other ideas but I remember one time I was running a course at the Australian Writers Centre I was it was a creative writing course for people um, who, who were just they'd been working in offices all day and they just wanted to dip their toe into the creative writing scene and a lot of these people had been given these uh, these courses as gifts from people, you know, the sign up for this course. And I started talking, um, I suppose in a fairly disparaging way about convention or about uh, mass, mass market uh, page turners, I suppose, and, and, and commercial fiction. Because I'd always felt that what I was striving for was something that was uh, perhaps a little more... Uh, highbrow than that and highbrow is a pretty ugly term i think but i'm, I'm <laughs> but i'm doing the mere culpa thing today so yes i was being very disparaging about commercial fiction until one of the uh, members of the class raised her hand and i said yes can i help she said have you stopped to think that maybe some of the people in this room want to write commercial fiction that we aren't here to write highbrow literary fiction we're here to write commercial fiction we, we want to write books that sell and you know what it was a real moment of uh epiphany for me i suppose where i had to stop and think you know what just because somebody's writing books that sell well doesn't mean that they're bad books and if they, even if they are quote bad books judged by some arbitrary standard they're still selling copies and there are still people reading them. And the only reason people keep writing books uh, that uh, the rest of us might look at and, and, and turn our nose up at is because they continue to sell, which means there is an audience. So I guess the lesson 
that I'm trying to take from this today is that a little bit of humility goes a long way as we realise that there's room in our industry for all kinds of writing. And there's room in our industry for all kinds of writers, for all kinds of books. And that uh, just because somebody is selling more books than we are doesn't mean that they are writing better or worse than we are. It just means that they are writing for an audience that, uh, that we haven't tapped into. And maybe it's not an audience that we want to tap into. Maybe it's, uh, it's just the way things are, that uh, people listen to different kinds of music, read, read different kinds of books, play different kinds of sports, have interest in different kinds of movies. And of course that is one of the great things about the artistic community is that we have this ability to reach out to all different kinds of people. And if all anyone ever wrote was like a particular writer, um, I think imagine if we all we had to read was Hilary Mantel, there'd be a lot of people who are very happy about that. But there'd be a vast number of people who are going, well, this isn't really for me. And instead of Hilary Mantel, I guess you can add any kind of, you can add anyone's name in there and you'll, you'll have a similar kind of... Uh, situation. So if you want to take a mantra from today, and I, I do, uh, I think my mantra is going to be just write what you want to write, write the story you need to write, just tell the story that is in you that you need to express, and let the audience thing worry about itself. I recently interviewed somebody that has uh, been working with Westwards, or when I say working with Westwards, uh, Brooke Robinson is a playwright who was uh, taking advantage of the Daffodil Cottage residencies that we, we offer. If you're not sure about these, they are a um, subsidised residency at a little cottage in Katoomba. They're really good for anyone who is looking for some time away in some, in some solitude to work on that that big project that they're, uh, they're, they need to really pay some attention to. It's, it's a two-bedroom cottage, so it's really useful for anyone who might be looking for a, a space to collaborate with someone, say a, a writer and an editor or, or uh, an illustrator and, a, and an author or, or whatever. And the uh, window for the applications for the next block of residencies is open right now. It's open for another few days for the rest of this week. Just go to our website and look for the details there and you can see what is required to apply and all the details. But the most recent one was Brooke Robinson who was up in the, in the cottage for 11 days. Uh, she, as part of her residency, did a talk at Blacksond High about uh, to some film, film studies students. But she is a, a playwright, a very successful playwright, has had plays performed in the Old Vic and uh, several other overseas venues and around Sydney and Melbourne and, and the rest of Australia. And I'm going to be featuring the longer interview with her in the mini masterclass next week. But here's a little bit of our conversation about criticism. I remember going and seeing one of, I don't know if it was his very last play or it was one of his last plays, Bob Ellis's. Oh, yes, yes. The, the one about... Um, Ben Chipley, I think it was. Um, God, it was excruciating. Mm. It was three hours long and it was a, a one-hander. And, um, yeah, it was grim. And even Bob Ellis was nodding off towards the end of it. He, oh, dear. We went to the opening yeah. night. and um, Anyway, I've probably yeah. upset some people by saying that, but it was, it was kind of grim. 
Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I've written a couple of plays that are one-handers, and, but I would say 90 minutes for a one-hander. <laughs> well, I, this had an intermission and there were a lot of spare seats after the intermission, yeah. it has to be said, you know. Do we stay here and drink $15 glasses of champagne or do we get, just go home? Yeah. That must be, that must be, is that an experience you've ever had, watching, watching people skulk off at half-time and feel like I've... Um, is, is that a kind of K, mm. KPI that you, you work towards, the way people feel about the, the play in real life? Yeah, it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to tell. I mean, I love um, the British playwright Lucy Kirkwood, you know, who's very successful and, and brilliant, says that during the interval she goes into um, the toilets and, like, hides mm-hmm. and over... And she does that deliberately to kind of overhear what people are saying because often theatres are notorious, especially for women, having very long queues for the for the lose. Right. So people often will chat, you know, with the, with, the, with the person they went with or with strangers. Um, and she says that especially during previews where playwrights are usually rewriting, that's where she gets her feedback from the lose. That could... Oh. <laughs> You're asking for trouble though, aren't you? Like, yeah. You're yeah. opening yourself up to some... The potential for some very dark feelings. Yeah, yeah, it's it's tricky with reviews and things. I mean, some people decide that they're not going to read them during the run, and some people will, won't read them until after the play is finished, and yeah. then you sort of, you know, that was your last project. Um, yeah, it, probably it's for everyone to make a decision on on how they think they can deal with that while the show's still going on. I've never had a theatre review because I've never written for theatre, but. I imagine it's similar for for you guys when you get a review where it's glowing throughout but then there's one line in there that says but x could have been better and that's the one you kind of focus on and 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 obsess about yeah yeah i mean i guess it's it's often said if you believe the good things that people will write about you you have to believe the bad as well so yeah that's that's that decision. Am I going to read it? Am I going to take it in, or am I or am I not going to? And if I am going to read you know? it, am I going to take it on face value and, and amend the things that need amending it, or just dismiss all of it? Right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I guess the danger would be, and you do hear of this. Um, usually, you know, there's such a long lead time in theatre. Things are pro, especially in this country, things are programmed like a year in advance. You'll be working on something new by the time your show's on. So, you know, I think you need to ask yourself, if I do get negative reviews, is that going to impact the project that I'm working on now, just from a sort of self-esteem point of view? Um, and you do hear stories of, of people that, you know, then find themselves really blocked or underconfident um, with their next project. So that was Brooke Robinson. And as I said, uh, the rest of that interview will be on our mini masterclass which you can find on your usual podcast aggregator. So please check it out. Before we go, uh, I just want to talk about a couple of projects that we have uh, that uh, are highlighted on our website at the moment. First of all, the Pinarolo Illustrated Residence is still open. Uh, the, windows, uh, the window is still open for expressions of interest and applications. So go to our website and check that out. That's a, a week at Pinarolo Children's Book Cottage in Blackheath uh, with mentorship by Margaret Hamilton. And so all the details on the website, so please go and check that out. And uh, when is the application? The applications are gonna close, uh, let's have a look here, uh, the 31st of August. So you've still got a little bit of time, 
But uh, you don't want to waste too much time because if you are going to apply, you're going to need to get some support material together and that might take a little bit of time. So, so please do that. Now, the Westwards Fundraising Art Auction is going. We had this uh, last year during COVID. We called it Covart. Um, and this is Covart 2. It's a Westwards Fundraising Auction. And you can go to our website and have a look and look for the beautiful uh, Bronwyn Bancroft collectible uh, print but we have uh, original works and signed high quality prints from from people such as Bronwyn Bancroft, Paul McDermott yes that Paul McDermott uh, Jeannie Baker, Jonathan Bentley, Elizabeth Honey, Andrew McLean, Anne James, Alison Lester, Matt Otley uh, Toby Riddle, Mitch Vane, Martin Chatterton, Eloise Short, Sadami Conchi, uh, Donna Rawlins Leanne Mulgo-Watson, whose uh, book Kui Mitigo won the Prime Minister's Award last year. Emma Quay, Ala Alfaron, who's one of our current uh, fellows. Max Hamilton, uh, Jennifer Goldsmith, Matt Cosgrove and Aaron Blaby. So please go and check out those. Uh, it's, a, it's a live auction site. And go and have a look at uh, what's available and what the reserve is on those because you could have a piece of Australian uh, picture book history hanging on your wall. So go to our website to check that out. And finally, we have the launch of uh, Three Weeks in November, which is taken from uh, selected writings, taken from the, uh, a program that we have done before at Cherrybrook Technology High, and uh, which, of course, is in Cherrybrook, a Year 10 cohort, over 400 students, and they were visited by uh, 12 writers who took them through five sessions, five double period sessions of creative writing workshops. And this publication is in fact the culmination of that. Uh, so you can find, uh, you can read it online and it all, it's all beautifully designed by Sailor Studios as usual. And you can go in there and have a look and see what these students have created. And what the 12 writers thought about the writing that was created uh, under their tutelage. So go to our website once again to uh, have a look at that. And if you have any questions about any of the things we've talked about on the podcast or any other time, westwords.com.au is the place for you to go to get all the information that you might require. So that's it from us for this uh, fortnight. We'll be back in a fortnight with another one of these podcasts, but in about a week with the uh, regular fortnightly mini masterclass, which, as I said, is with Brooke Robinson, the playwright. And it will be about uh, the approaches that writers can take to writing for the stage. It was a, it was a fun conversation with Brooke, and I think uh, you'll get something very valuable out of it. But that's it for now. So as we always say at the end of these podcasts, see you next time. And in the meantime, happy creating. Mm-hmm.